Pastor Tom, it is a privilege to be here worshiping with you this morning. Um, two things, if you're here visiting us for the first time, we're especially glad you're here. You can fill out one of the white Connect cards and drop it in the offering basin. We don't pass the plate. Um, this is the way we collect the offering. Um, if you are a member of our church or that you call this church your home, uh, you also have a handout inside of your bulletin on whether uh, you give online or through envelopes. We do need to have that by today, so please let us know that as well. And if you would please, if you didn't bring a Bible, open up the one in front of you as we prepare to get into God's Word this morning. Um, we're in Romans chapter 3, verse 19, and it's on 784 in your pew Bible. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, then the one in front of you is a gift for you today. And um, I love, I, I saw several people coming in and out this morning with those Bibles, and it is a joy, I know, um, to the many hearts here who have given so that you can have God's word with you wherever you go. And uh, so please take that as our gift to you. Paul's words to the church in Rome, chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, at the present time, so that so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for your word. It's, it's a heavy mouthful of language and theology and, and deep thought. But God, I believe that these words have a truth. That if your Holy Spirit would unlock for us, will allow us to leave this place more like you than when we came. Because we'll be able to receive your grace and your love in a way that maybe we don't allow ourselves to and allowed ourselves to when we came. And so I pray that that would be the truth. That my words would not be my own, but they would just further illuminate yours. And it's in your name all God's people said. Amen. Well, those of you um, who maybe didn't come from the Lutheran church may not know what today is. It's a special day for those of us who are Christian Lutherans, and so I have to wear my special wig. Does anybody know what day today is? Reformation Sunday. Reformation Sunday. It's the Sunday before October 31st, which 502 years ago wasn't Halloween, but Reformation Day. It was the day when a German Catholic monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a document 
to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and it outlined in it, he nailed, does anybody want to laugh at that? It was just inside. Thank, thank you. You guys are flattering me. It might just be funny to me. He nailed it, pun intended, to the door. It specifically outlined 95 theses or arguments that he wanted to discuss. Now, nailing something to the church door might sound foreign to you today, and I would discourage you from doing it at St. John's because all of our doors are glass. <laughs> that wouldn't work very well. But back in that day, it was actually a normal way to bring about discussion and debate. What was also normal in that day was for monks to have a haircut like this. Now, I got to tell you, when I first bought this, it goes with a whole monk costume that I usually bring out for Halloween. Um, my boys, in all seriousness, I put it on and they looked at me and they said, Dad, why did you buy that? Your hair looks the same without it. <laughs> and so I'll take it off. <laughs> You probably won't take me seriously if I wear it for the rest of the sermon. Anyway, I, I did a little research, though. I thought, does it make him holier? And there's actually really no explanation on the record in history for why monks would make their hair like that, except that it was not any more popular 500 years ago than it is today. And maybe it was something to do with, with looking like a crown of thorns and joining in, in Jesus' suffering, maybe just joining in his suffering by the looks you'd get with your hair looking like that. But he did it to himself, not not really sure why. But 500 years ago, this, this man by the name of Martin Luther would start a conversation in all of this that would end up leading, little did he know, to an incredibly large split in the church. And it was over a fundamental difference in the term that we're going to define today, the term grace. See, because even though 500 years have passed, and I want to say this, that that over those 500 years, many in the church, whether it be the Catholic church or, or anybody who's not Catholic and still Christian, we call that the Protestant church. Protestant comes from the word protest because originally it was, it was a protest and reformation, the word we're using for today, meant reform. They wanted there to be one church, but we split up because we're broken and we're human. And, and the truth is, in both sides of the equation, we've largely corrected many of the things Martin Luther had a problem with then. But just because we've corrected our theology does not mean we don't still make the same mistakes that they were making because those mistakes are rooted in the human heart. And we can see it in what we identify and define as grace. And so we want to go back to God's word and look at God's word and, and understand a good, solid definition of grace. And the way we're going to do that is I want to kind of give you a road map of how we're going to climb through it so you kind of know where Romans is leading us. There's, there's three things that I believe God's word is going to define for us as we define grace. Number one is that grace calls us to give something up. And that might not actually sound true if you grew up in Sunday school and, and you were taught all along that grace is free. Because the second thing we're going to learn is that grace isn't free and it isn't cheap. And the third thing we're going to learn is that grace isn't fair. Now, that doesn't sound like a very grace-filled sermon at all, does it? But my hope is that as we climb through this, you're going to see that God's grace is actually better than often the grace that we believe. Now, to begin that, I, I want to ask you, and, and this has created some very lively discussion in the last two services, how many of you had a, a collection growing up? Did you collect something, anything, when you were a kid? Just show of hands. Um, what, what did you collect? Kareen, what did you collect?
owls. You collected owls. Okay. She's sitting next to her sister, like waiting for her to make fun of her collection of owls. I don't know. <laughs> Who else? I saw a bunch of hands. Yeah. Dolls. Okay. Um, I saw Bruce back there. What did you collect? Baseball cards. Stamps. Anybody else? Frogs. Legos. I'm going to point out Rick um, because it's just too good not to share again. Um, Rick, why don't you say it and then I'll say it in my microphone so those listening to the podcast this week know what we're talking about. Rick, what was your childhood collection? Beer cans. (laughs) And not only did Rick collect beer cans, but when you came to church, what did you do with your collection of beer cans? So, in front of the church. So, again, if you're listening online, Rick collected beer cans as a kid. It didn't mean he consumed the beer before he got the cans, but he collected beer cans, brought them to church, and traded them with a childhood friend whose parents also attended church in the front of the church. And I talked to Mr. Baker's mother after the last service, and apparently, her son's beer can collection is still sitting nice on the display shelves that her his father had built for them in the basement all those years ago. So it's kind of interesting what we all collect. Um, I heard ba- baseball cards. I, I collected basketball cards. Did you have a three-ring binder for your collection at one point? Before that, shoebox, right? Like that kind of a thing. I I had the three-ring binder. I had the display. I had all of those things. And the one thing about my collection, if you collected something a little bit more obscure like beer cans or owls, you probably didn't bring your collection to school. But if you collected baseball cards or basketball cards, remember you'd bring that to school. And if if you're a little bit younger, maybe it was Beanie Babies, right? Or, Or maybe it was something else. And you bring it to school and on the playground you'd trade, right? And, and I never really did that. And the reason why I never did that was because I was always a little bit afraid of whether or not it was going to be a fair trade. Like, am I really going to get something better if I give up what I already have? And so most of the time what I would do is I would just hold on to what I had and I would keep my collection to myself. I, I didn't take the chance of getting something better because I was too afraid of giving up what I already had. And the reason I start there is because as I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about how we still maybe haven't fully understood what God's grace is, is is that my fear is that it's the same root issue when it comes to our faith. We know the story of Jesus, and I was just sharing with our leadership a couple of weeks ago the declining church attendance across the board. Um, They're actually saying in Lutheran churches, it's it's important to say this on on Reformation Sunday, uh, the largest denomination in the Lutheran church they are projecting is going to not even exist by the year 2041 because of declining attendance. And yet at the same time as that is the trajectory of the church, We know the story of Jesus better today than probably in just about any other place in history. You know the story of a God who sent his son to die on the cross, and then three days later he rose from the grave to forgive us of our sins and to unlock the keys of heaven and all of that. The problem for us in accepting it is we're not sure that we want to give up what we've already got. We're not sure that we want to give up what we have because we're not certain that what God has for us is going to be worth more. After all, 
they define this thing we call the gospel with words like grace and say that grace is free. And we've been taught that anything that doesn't require anything from us is too good to be true, haven't we? I mean, even Martin Luther said it. He, he said this. He said, if God were willing to sell his grace, we'd probably accept it more quickly and gladly than when he offers it for nothing. <laughs> and it's true. Because the reason is, is we feel more control when we have our hand in it. And if you don't believe me, just think about the last time you went out for coffee with somebody and they said, you know what, I'm going to buy your coffee for you. What did you say? Just automatically, what came off your tongue? Anybody? No. No. No, I'll get it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll get it. I'll take care of it. And, and it's almost like automatic. And the reason why is not because you care about the other person. I'm just going to say this. Most of the time, for me as well, it's not because I care about the other person. It's because their offer makes me feel uncomfortable. See, I feel uncomfortable, and so I want to pay for it. I want to do it. I'm hardwired to say it because I feel awkward. It feels wrong. And the thing is, 500 years ago on Martin Luther's Day, there was only one church. Catholic means whole. And there was only one church, and they built this entire system on that kind of way of thinking. They built an entire religious structure around you feeling like you've got to somehow have your hand in the process of salvation. And so what they did is they sold forgiveness. They sold the ability to go to heaven in these things they called indulgences. And it was so bad that at one point there was this preacher who lived at the same time as, as Martin Luther who was, was quoted as saying this, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That's what the preachers were saying 500 years ago. Just throw your money in the offering and all will be well. Just write a check and good old Aunt Sally who died 10 years ago and you wonder whether or not she went where you want her to go, just write a check and boom, her soul will go to heaven. Here's the problem. People would devote their entire life savings to the church and they still felt inside of them that something wasn't right. They would write a check, they would put coins in the coffer, and they still did not feel forgiven and saved. And that was Martin Luther's story. He, he never felt good enough in the eyes of God. And so at age 21, something happened that we often use as a reference point. How many times have you ever referenced the chances of being struck by lightning? You ever use that in, in conversation? Like, you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning. Well, here's the thing. Martin Luther actually did get struck by lightning. It's a true story. Right next to him, fell over, and he had a near-death experience. And many of us have experienced that. Maybe for you it was a car accident, or it was a health scare, whatever it was. And in that moment, he prayed the same prayer that many of us have prayed. God, if you save me, I will blank, right? Now, you fill in the blank for you. For him, he said, I will become a monk. Have you ever prayed that one? <laughs> Maybe not. You know, because you're like, I don't know. Like, am I going to have to do it? Well, Martin Luther was saved. Like, he didn't die on that day. And so he was a man of his word. He decided to become a monk and a priest, and he even taught other priests in the seminary. And the more he learned as he studied and taught God's word, the more he realized that he was falling short of everything it says, that he was not living up to the standard that God was calling him to live. And so you can imagine how he felt 
when he read the reading that we read today and actually began to understand the book of Romans and this understanding of grace. Now, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, and, and just in the few chapters before our reading here, he kind of outlines for us that from the very beginning of history, all of humanity has been in and under the fallenness and the power of sin. I mean that sincerely, as Ted said, that the, the, the praise team is a group of misfits. We're all a group of misfits. All of humanity is a group of misfits. And, and that's what he explains, that we've all missed the mark from the very beginning of time. And if you want to know why there's evil and suffering and brokenness in the world, you have to look no further than the root cause of all of it, which is this brokenness between us and God called sin. And so God started this trajectory of redemption, which began, well, it began before that, but eventually he gave us the law. This is way before Jesus. He gave us the law. He gave us the Bible to show us the way that he designed us to live. And naturally, as the Jewish people received God's law, they read it, and they tried to follow it. And just like you and me, they failed to do so again and again and again and again. Well, it turns out, according to Paul, that God actually knew that that was going to be the case from the very beginning. That God knew when he gave his law, when he gave us his word, he knew from the very beginning that there wasn't going to be a single human being on the face of the planet apart from Jesus that would ever be able to follow it completely. And it begs the question I have to ask, it almost makes God sound mean. (laughs) Like, why would God give us all of this knowing full well that we'll never be able to live by it unless, of course, he had a different purpose for it? And that's what Paul is about to explain to us. In Romans 3.19, he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. The purpose was so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world would be held accountable to God. Here's how I compare the law, the word of God. I compare it to what happens when you're driving down the road. And I shared this story a few years ago, and it was right around Reformation Sunday, so I was able to share it in my message. It's what happens when you're driving down the road, and I'm not going to tell you which road it was, but I was driving down the road, and I looked down the road, and I saw coming around the curve a vehicle that was black and white with lights on top. What happens when you're driving down the road and you see a vehicle that's black and white with lights on top? Where do your eyes go immediately? Anybody? Your speedometer. And you look down at your speedometer because you know that you are speeding. The presence of the officer reminds you and shows you and makes you aware of the fact that you're breaking the rules. In my case, eventually that white and black car with lights on it passed me, and I really had to slam on the brakes. And no joke, the officer looked at me, and and as we were passing by, took his hands off the wheel and went like this. (laughs) And I'll never forget that. Because the presence of that officer and any officer I ever see when I'm driving reminds me of the law and more often than I care to admit reminds me that I'm guilty, that I'm speeding, that I'm not following the rules. Well, Paul says that the whole purpose of the law to begin with was to do that in every manner of life. 
Like, we just finished the series on family, right? We just talked about the family. We talked about God's ideal for our family. And if you really listened, what you learned is that God has an ideal for family, for marriages, for relationships with our kids, for all of that. And none of us are living up to it. I even got an email at the end of the series. This person said, oh, I, I'm so grateful. They're newer to our church. He said, I'm so grateful for this series. It was so great. My kids needed to hear one of those messages. And so I dragged them to church one Sunday. And before you even got through the scripture reading, it was me who was convicted. And my kids were doing this and going, Mom, that's you. That's what the Bible does. It shows us. It convicts us. It shows us that God has a standard for our life that no one is living up to. And Paul knew this, and so he explained why God did it. Verse 20, he said, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. We become conscious of the law through our sin. That's its purpose, is to make us conscious of our brokenness. And I told you at the very beginning that there's three things that I want you to think about that are going to help us define grace. And the first one is this, that grace calls us to give something up. Grace calls us to give something up. Now, we like to say God's grace is free, and I don't want to argue with that. It is free. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute, but to receive God's grace, there's at least two things that you're going to have to give up. The first thing you're going to have to give up is your ignorance. Because of God's grace, you can no longer say, officer, I didn't know I was speeding. Because God's grace shows you that you were. And even if you don't know anything about this book, if you're like, well, I'm off the hook because I've never read the Bible. Well, you're not off the hook either. Because Paul said just a chapter before in Romans to the people that were referred to as Gentiles, they were not the ones God had originally given the law. He said that they know the law too because it's written on their hearts. Verse uh, Chapter 2, verse uh, 15, it says this. It says, the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences bear witness, and thoughts some, um, sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. Their consciences are telling them that it's wrong. Their thoughts are telling them that it's wrong. So many of us have that going on inside of our heads. That even though, and even though we know that we're guilty because of what we've read or because of what we felt or because of what our thoughts have told us, even though we've become painfully aware of it, we say, okay, fine, I'm not ignorant to the fact that I messed up. Maybe you say, that's why I come to this church because I know that we're all messed up and we remind ourselves of that. Maybe that's not your issue, but we still don't feel the grace that has been extended to us. And the reason is because it's not just ignorance you have to give up, but you also have to give up control. So you have to give up control. You have to give up the illusion that says, I've been speeding for the last 10 miles, and so I'm going to drive 10 miles under the speed limit for the next 20 miles, and that'll make it all better. <laughs> Sounds silly when you think about speeding in your car, but that's how we live our lives. I'm just going to be a better person tomorrow. That'll make up for it. God will pitch you know, the, the balance in my favor if I just do that. But you've got to give up the illusion because the Bible has been trying to point out to every human being since the very beginning that you will never be good enough, that you cannot fix this problem, that it is deeper than you. It is something called sin, and it has been infecting every human being from the very beginning of time. Verse 21, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Everything that came before Jesus was a symbol. 
Everything that came before Jesus was pointing to the real answer that would come. And the real answer would not be you and I finally someday achieving our own perfection, but the real answer would be putting our faith and trust in the one that already is perfect. It's not our achieving our own perfection, but it's putting our faith and trust in the one who already is. And that's what Paul says in verse 21. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, between the inside circle and the outside circle, between those who go to church and those who never go to church, between those who've read the Bible cover to cover and those who've never opened up the book. There's no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all messed up and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus. That's grace. Grace is that you can walk in the doors of this church, and I believe every Sunday someone walks in the doors of this church and falls over the threshold because all week long, or maybe for longer than that, you have been putting all your energy in trying to achieve a perfection that you know in your heart you're never going to achieve. And so what a beautiful, beautiful message it is to be able to come in and to hear God's word and to know that I can simultaneously own my sin I can own my shortcomings. I don't have to hide behind anything, any facade. I can say, this is who I am. I am not ignorant, but I am also not in control because I can trade in my imperfection for the perfection of Jesus. And the reason you can do that is because of his grace. And while his grace is free, it's free to you, the second thing we learn about grace is that it isn't free. (laughs) and It isn't cheap. You might look at verse 24 and you might say, well, you sound like you're contradicting scripture because it says all are justified freely by grace. And that's true. You and I are justified freely by grace, but that doesn't mean that just because it's free to us that it didn't cost the one who gives it to us. It actually cost Jesus everything. Grace, to quote another Lutheran pastor, Bonhoeffer, it was costly. And what did it cost God? Well, specifically, Paul explains it. He says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, you ever had a loan and they paused the loan for you? doesn't mean that you didn't owe it. It just means that they paused the payments. Because of his forbearance, He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and as the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is a mouthful. This will take you years. This is something I still don't understand. And I've been to seminary and I've read it a million times. But I'll break down the most important part of it. It's that God gave humanity the law. He gave us his word. And then... Before Jesus, he held back on punishing people for breaking it. He held back on punishing for breaking it because he knew that his plan was to send his son Jesus to take the punishment for us, to live the perfect life that you and I have not lived and so that he would die the perfect death that you and I know that we deserve so that we would arrive at the resolution, which is his overcoming of that death, that we might be saved. And so that leaves us with the last question. If that's what God did, then why? (laughs) Why would God send his son? 
And if he's God, then it's quite obvious to me, and I hope it is to you, that he didn't have to do it, which leaves only one other option, and that option is he did it because he wanted to. He did it because he wanted to, because the third thing we learn about grace is that grace isn't fair. Grace isn't fair. And, and I think about that statement, and I think about our world right now, and I think how many arguments are going on in the sphere of our culture in the sphere of our politics, in the sphere of our social circles that all have to do with what is and isn't fair. You think about your family and the brokenness in your family. Does it not come down to something that somebody said wasn't fair? When you open up the newspaper, you watch TV, and you see politicians fighting. Are they not fighting no matter what side it is that you're on over what is or isn't fair? And I think to myself, when did we decide that the things that matter most in life are fair? Like, where did we go off and decide that the things that really matter most are fair? Like, do we judge love based on fairness? Like, should I tell my wife, Alyssa, when I get home today, you know what, Liz, we've been, been married 11 years, and you've always done the laundry, and I've done the math. I know exactly how much time it takes you to do a load of laundry for me. I, I figured it out, and I'm a fair husband, hun. So, so, so here's the deal. Like, I know sometimes I throw my socks in there all crinkled up, and sometimes my pants are, are inside out, and that takes time. And so I've figured that out, and I've added up all the time that you've ever done laundry for me. And I promise you, as a fair husband who loves you, that I will do the exact equivalent of the dishes for the rest of our marriage, but I will do nothing more. <laughs> How many people would want to be married to a guy like me? <laughs> it's not love. How do we come, like, do we assign our value to a boss or a friend or a neighbor primarily by how fair they've been to us? I mean, think about the best job you ever had. Think about the best boss you ever had. Was it somebody that just told the line and made sure everything was black and white, everything was fair all the time? Or was the best boss the boss who let you have time off when your mom was going through chemo and you needed to drive her to and from her appointments? Was your best boss the one who said that you could take time off when your kids were young and they would get sick or you needed to go on a field trip or, or something like that? Like, is that fair? Was it fair to your boss? Was it fair to the other co-workers that they had to pick up the slack? No. But it sure sounds like a great place to work, doesn't it? It's the perfect neighbor, somebody who builds a, a big fence and makes sure that you're absolutely fair about the lot line between what's theirs and what's yours. Or is a good neighbor like Mr. Wilson from the show Home Improvement, remember him? <laughs> he had a fence, but he was never unwilling to show himself above that fence, at least partially, remember the show? <laughs> when his neighbor, Tim Taylor, needed a listening ear. How about parenting? Those of you who have teenagers in your home, how often do you hear your teenagers say, this isn't fair? Next time you hear that, I want to give you an answer, parents, okay? When your kids say that, that this isn't fair, then you tell them, you know what, it's not fair. In 2017, according to the Department of Agriculture, they did a study, and a middle-income couple that's raising two children from age 0 to 17 will spend $233,000 doing so, and that doesn't even include college. You can say, son, daughter, want to talk about fair? <laughs> but don't stop there. 
then tell your child, you know what's really not fair? That I got to hold your little life in my arms when you were born. Because I know that that is not a gift that's given to everyone. And you know what else is not fair is that when you were a little person, you ran around running with my ears and my nose, and I see now that you're a teenager that apparently you got my stubbornness too. (laughs) For those of you in the room who have adopted or fostered children, or maybe you've cared significantly for your grandchildren, think about that. How unfair is that? That you get to have a role in the life of these children that we're not your own, that there's no amount of money or time or effort that would make it fair that you get to have them in your life and you in theirs. Fair is not the term we use to describe the things that matter most in life. The best things in life are described by grace. Grace, unmerited, undeserved, unfair. Not what God what you've done for God, but what God has done for you. And when you see God that way, it changes how you see the world. One German monk with a terrible haircut changed everything 502 years ago because he saw God's heart of grace. It's not just something you receive, but then it's something you live. And I want to give you a challenge as you leave here. I want to give you a challenge to be able to live this out this week. No matter where you're at, what you're going through, you have an assignment. How, how many of you go through the day, and, and so often, I see it all the morning, this morning it's happened, when, when you greet somebody, you say hello, and then you say, how are you, right? And, 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 and so I want you on a count of three, I'm going to say, how are you? And I want you to answer that question how you normally answer it. How are you? You guys are better than the last service. The last service, they were all like, fine. <laughs> Apparently, we ran out of coffee. I don't know. You guys are a little bit better. Okay, here's what I want you to do. And I've heard this from other people. This is not my own, but it's just struck with me. And I think it'll help us this week live out grace. When somebody asks, how are you to you? I don't want you to say fine. I don't want you to say good. I don't want you to say bad. What I want you to say is I want you to say better than I deserve. Let's try that. How are you? And you know the reason why I want you to say that? Because it's true. It's true, no matter what your circumstances, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, your heart beats because of the grace of God. You have life because of the grace of God. I've talked to, to friends who are going through, through, through um, cancer treatments who have said, life is better than I deserve. I've talked to friends and family who've lost their spouses and have said, I see God's grace in the midst of the life that I've been given. It's not just for when life is good. Because God's grace says that he is with us always, no matter what our circumstances. And so I want you to go this week, and every time somebody asks you, how are you, I want you to say, better than I deserve. And maybe, just maybe, they might stop and say, oh, that's interesting. Why do you say that? And it'll give you an opportunity to say to them very simply, because of God's grace. And so would you pray with me right now? Lord Jesus, I I just want to thank you I want to thank you for the people that have gone before us that have unlocked this definition of grace for us in your word. A grace that calls us to give up our ignorance. A grace that calls us to to give up our control. A grace that calls us to be aware that you are a God who loves us so much that 
that you sent your son to die for that grace and forgiveness, that, that it was not free and it was not cheap. It cost you everything, and that is not fair. But if there's one thing that we learn as we study your entire word, it's that there is nothing about fairness written through it all. You knew from the very beginning when you put the law together that we would not live up to it. And you knew that knowing that you would fix it anyway. That you would unlock our salvation and forgiveness no matter how many coins we do or don't put in the coffer because it isn't up to us, it's up to you. By your grace. And so we're privileged to come around this table as we open up our eyes and remember that it's grace that draws us together. As it drew the disciples together 2,000 years ago, the context of this meal was 12 men, all who had fallen short of your glory, and they would walk out the door, and they still fell short. And it didn't stop you then, and so it doesn't stop you now with us to share your